Yes, everybody, it is me, Matt Wright, your friendly neighborhood libertarian, coming to you live on this wonderful and beautiful and fantastic Thursday evening. Uh, I truly appreciate each and every one of you that chooses to spend their Thursday evenings here with me on the writer's block because there are a lot of things you could be doing today, and uh, you are choosing to forego all of those to be here with me. Uh, So thank you all very much. First and foremost, allow me to thank, man, I should thank Casey Nether Carbonella the 14th, but she only bought me this today because she's going to ask me a favor tomorrow. And since I'm not 100% sure what that favor is, I'm not thanking her. Instead, I will once again thank me. If anybody wants to be the official Cava sponsor of Muddy Waters, please reach out to me. All you have to do is buy me Cava. Um, you just have to give me Cava. Really. I mean, I don't care if you buy it. Like, you can steal it and give it to me. I don't care. But to me and to all of you, I say, Bula Vanaka. So, let's start out today paying a few of the bills that we need to pay. Starting out with the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest growing and second largest caucus in the Libertarian Party in the largest waffle-related caucus in the world. In the entire world. Uh, the Gravy King. Fierce Luxury by Ashley. Fierce Luxury by Ashley is a high-end bag and accessory consignment shop where you, my wonderful and gentle listeners, can consign for 20% less 
than most consignment shops, or so I'm told. You only consign with her for 30%. This is a place where you can get the highest end bags around. They've got Louis Vuitton. They've got Goosey. They've got Harms and others. <laughs> and others. That is how little I know. I, the coach, I think, is a high-end bag. I could be wrong. I'm not 100% sure. It's the only one thing I know how to pronounce in women's fashion, so they may have it there. Uh, so go to FierceLuxuryByAshley.com or join their exclusive Facebook group, Fierce Luxury by Ashley. Adderpan. Adderpan is a terrifying video game that will give you nightmares and possibly require therapeutic help for the rest of your life. But the cost of having to get therapy for the rest of your life is only $5 on Steam. So uh, head on over to Steam, get Adderpan, and you will get expansions for the rest of your life for free. This is literally the cost of a cup of coffee, a gallon of gas, some places in America right now, I think. Uh, And you could just... Instead of going places and buying coffee, you could just be scared crapless for the rest of your life. And honestly, that is a better way to spend $5. Tom for 52.com. That's T-O-M-F-O-R 52.com. Thomas Queter is rolling for state Senate in New York because he can't actually run uh, because he's in a wheelchair. Get it? Get it? Get it? But he is running for he is running or rolling for state senate in Albany. And his slogan is I run better than Albany. Get it? Cause you know, he can't. Tom pays us to say these things. Um every month he has a meme contest and merch. All you have to do is go to Tomfor52.com. That is T-O-M-F-O-R-52.com. And uh, if you go to tomfor52.com slash FTG, I am told there is some very special and valuable stuff there. So you should definitely go there and see what it is I'm referring to. Mudwater. Are you one of those people, you know, like the Taliban who woke up today and said, you know what? I never want coffee ever again in my life. Then you should try mud water because it tastes like you took the sand right off of the floor and poured it into a cup and mixed it with water. But you know, it has one seventh of the caffeine, but it will get you very much awake. Check out Spike Cohen on uh, check out Spike Cohen on Tuesday nights, and you will see that mud water works exceptionally well. And as we say here, trust me, add honey. This shirt is because of mud water. I'm wearing it for a different reason tonight, but it just works out. Trust me. Add honey if you go the mud water route. Uh, if you do try mud water and you can't get that disgusting taste out of your mouth, um, go to CumberlandCannabisCo.com for viable, ethical, and effective Delta 8 CBD. Basically, uh, Tennessee has figured out how to make weed uh, legal everywhere. And... They perfected whiskey, so in all honesty, like how could they mess up weed? They perfected whiskey, so and the other country music, Elvis, other things. So uh, you know they're really good at perfecting things. So go over to CumberlandCannabisCo.com 
for the finest viable, ethical, and effective uh, CBD Delta 8 available on the market. Jack Casey is a freak. Um, he's written some books. I don't know. I don't know what these books are about. Uh, knowing what I know about Jack Casey, they would not be appropriate for a family show such as this one. The show actually comes with a trigger warning. It's in the notes. So I'm not even sure if this episode is going to be a, uh, I don't even know if this show is going to be family friendly. This, this show might be good for people who would read Jack Casey's books. Um, except I feel with Jack Casey's books, at least you're going to get a happy ending. Um, <laughs> um, so check those out. Tell me if you get a happy ending when you read Jack Casey's books, I'm not a hundred percent sure. And, uh, Jack Casey, uh, Keep buying ad space because this is my favorite part of every episode I do. Uh, Joe Soloski, he is running for governor. <laughs> he is running for governor of Pennsylvania. So if you live in the Pennsylvania region of these United States and want to make Joe Soloski the first libertarian governor in history, in history, uh, you should vote for him. He is the key to making... Pennsylvania mightier than the sword of authoritarian government. Um, so thank you all so much for allowing me to pay bills there for a minute uh, in only a way that we can and get away with it. Uh, but uh, so initially, as I announced, Nate Adkins was going to be my guest tonight, but unfortunately uh, for him, he had to do some I'm running for mayor thing. I don't know. Uh, so he was unable to make it. But fortunately for me, and fortunately for all of you, I can finally say that I am able to announce on this show, I think on, well, I think as a guest on any Muddied Water show for the first time, I'm going to go with it. Even if it's not true, I'm going to go with this is true. Please welcome with me the Eskimo Libertarian. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> What, welcome to the writer's block. How, I, I am so happy that you are here with me on this show as opposed to that other show on Fridays. Oh, yes, that other show, you know, the one that, with Eskimo in the name. <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> that one. The, the one that is the one that used to come on on Sundays and I would watch it while I was folding laundry and now comes on right in the middle of date night. Yeah, that one. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Someone likes the NFL, so sorry. I get it. Yeah, I do too. I was just going to multitask. Um, but no, I am, so, I am so happy that you are here. Um, I'm so happy that you are here. I'm, I am glad that I got to bust out my orange shirt to have you on the show today. And we're going to get into why we are going to be talking about that in just a little bit. Um, and since you are actually a host of your own show on Muddied Waters Media, I feel like I don't have to do my normal. So how is it that you came to the libertarian movement thing? Because I know that you've told it before. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but if you want to give us the most condensed version possible, because I know we have a lot of stuff to get to today, because you did the notes today and you put my notes to shame, which that saying a lot. Um, <laughs> pew, 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 pew. <laughs> so, uh, in, in the most condensed way possible, how is it that you found yourself, you know, on this Island of misspent toys? Um, 
fighting for liberty in a country that seems to not want it. Well, first off, I want to say it's odd doing a Muddy Water show and not saying the sponsors. So thanks for doing that for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So pretty much uh, I just started paying attention. That's like the most condensed way I can put it. I just literally started paying attention. And like when COVID hit and I saw like the government was coming in with these mandates and they're like, hey, we're going to shut you down. I'm like, they can do that. And so I just started paying attention. I started reading more and started making memes. And I was like, wow, we are living in a much more dystopian world than I thought we were. So yeah. Yeah. When, when all of COVID started happening, part of me was like, this is going to get really, really bad. And everybody around me is going to, um, bend the knee as it were and just say no we have to bow down to daddy government um we have to bow down to daddy government and i don't know what else to say and but there was another part of me that was speaking louder going this is not going the way this is not going to happen this way we're not going to go through the shutdowns that everybody's talking about um mask mandates aren't going to actually stick around that long because in in somewhere deep inside of me the part that you know was still holds on to a little bit of conservatism. I was like, Repu- like Americans don't do this. Americans don't stand for people telling them what to do. And well, that last bit of Republican conservatism died inside of me because I watched as many Republicans and conservatives were like, no, I think it's best if we just wore the mask for a couple of weeks. And now we're getting to a point where you're seeing a lot of them uh, who are, you see a lot of them online standing up saying, no, I'm not going to do this va- uh, this vaccine mandate, and I'm tired of these mask mandates. But there still are many out there going, I don't want you around me if you're not going to be vaccinated. So I'd, I have given up all hope in any kind of change happening in the two-party system. Um, I always kind of held out a little bit because the Libertarian Party, as much as I love the members of the Libertarian Party, uh, there are a lot of problems that I see with the party itself. And that's why I don't think we grow. Um, And, and so now I'm just like, well, we may as well just go pure anarchy because nobody's going to listen to it. Like nobody, everybody's going to try to control you and it is going to come to that. Um, Yeah. I'm not quite as far into the libertarian movement yet. So like there's that whole joke of like difference between libertarian and anarchist is like six months, six months, you know, and I'm still at the like minarchist stage, but like, you know, you you just like your authority, you like diet authoritarianism. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) So I, I mean, my page only started a year ago. Like I I didn't really start doing anything until a year ago. Well, thank you. You are killing it. Like, so Muddied Waters on in December, Muddied Waters will be five years old. Um, and thank you. Uh, and we have had massive growing pains uh, over the course of those five years. Uh, anybody who has been following us for five years understands that. Like, we, we were hit with shadow bans early on. Um, we had uh, issues with ownership between the of the company for a little bit we got everything sorted out but we lost our like button for like a year and a half we still don't have one uh, i think they got rid of it just altogether. and i don't know um but we lost our like button and 
even you have said, if you share something of ours, it does not get the reach that something yeah. you post does. Um, and, but in the year, the year, year and a half that you have been running Eskimo Libertarian, you have seen massive growth. Um, your reach is unbelievable. And what you are doing to help spread the message is truly inspiring to so many people. And I hear it constantly and I agree with them every single time. Um, which when I saw what you and Cajun were doing, and then I heard you guys were doing a show, it was a no brainer that I wanted you guys to be on muddied waters media with us. Like that was a, I texted Spike. I was like, Hey, Cajun Eskimo doing a show. I'm going to ask him to be on muddied waters. Cool. He went, yes. And I went, cool. I was going to do it anyway. Um, yes. He, okay. <laughs> you weren't going to have a, you weren't really going to have a choice. So I was going to just go, okay. Um, but uh, like, because of how, how good you are, both of you, both you and Cajun are at spreading the message and how good, especially both me. Of, especially, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, come on, <laughs> look at these notes. You are well planned out. I feel like, I feel you already know many of your posts tomorrow. Um, <laughs> and next week. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, sorry. What? <laughs> yeah, fair, fair. Uh, I have no idea. I'm going to be looking tomorrow morning on my drive to work for things to post, um, and then I will delete <laughs> some of them later after I realize. Oh, Facebook's definitely going to kick us off for that. Um, <laughs> which I had to do today because I was like, "That's really funny," and then I was like, "Oh no, not in Facebook world." Um, but. With you and Cajun, the way that you are spreading the message and the reach that you guys are able to get, you guys are quickly becoming intrinsic voices in this movement. And in all honesty, it is an honor and a privilege to say that you have a show on Muddied Waters Media. And even more so an honor to say you are here talking about this issue that we're going to be talking about tonight with me. Yeah, for sure. This is actually the one issue that I am the most passionate about is something like for years, I've like kind of been telling people part of it. And I really did a lot more research. And with my platform, I am so happy that I'm getting this message out there. And so many people have talked to me like, I've never heard of this before. And I'm like, yeah, you it's really sad, like how traumatic this is, how tragic it is. And no one's heard about it. In, in all honesty, I did not know about Orange Shirt Day until you called and left a message on Tuesday. And when you said, hey, it's Orange Shirt Day, like I was here on my tablet here, like, um, what is Orange Shirt Day? And That's okay. Because <laughs> I had no idea about it. Um, and but after I, like, I was sitting here reading about it, and I sent it to uh, the director of our HR um at the at my job um and i said and i said hey this might be something we want might want to look into i understand probably not this year because it's in two days and that takes approval um because it's yeah. a company but uh maybe for next year it would be something that we could look into uh potentially pushing um and if so i will consider it a win if i can convince her to do it next year Awesome. That would be Get it. cool. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, I totally forgot one of my sponsors. I'll get to that sponsor at the end. I apologize to that sponsor. He's in the comments. Um, oh. <laughs> no, it's fine. 
we're just going to totally give him product placement. Look at this nice. <laughs> isn't this a great tumbler, though? It's a great tumbler. Right. Defy the power. Not dishwasher safe, right? Not dishwasher yeah. safe. You got to hand wash these. But totally worth. <laughs> totally worth this. Because all of the, like, all of these uh, uh, additions, like, any, any special things that you want to do, free. Wow. I should get one with my little avatar logo and then my Absol- badass one on the other side. That would be so cool. You absolutely should. And Spike doesn't watch this show, so I'll do this here. But on the bottom, mm-hmm, it says Spike talks too much. <laughs> it really does. Like, I don't, I, I don't know how leak-proof this is. Yeah, no, I'm not going to try that over my computer. But uh, this is Spike talks too much. Okay, so- I would have sympathy for him, except he washes his tumblers in the dishwasher. In the the dishwasher. If he didn't wash his tumbler in the dishwasher, I wouldn't call him out for talking too much when he goes on one of his rants with my Defy the Power tumbler that I got from Defy the Power with my free add-ons. Didn't cost any extra. I like how it says man and not guy. Man on left instead of guy on left. I grew up. I'm no longer just a guy. <laughs> I'm a man. Um, <laughs> okay, sorry to, to, I mean, I know this is a really serious subject. And I feel bad about kind of derailing us there a little bit. Um, but welcome to Muddy Waters Media. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but yes, I am trying to get that in place for next year. Uh, I am trying to get Orange Shirt Day in place for next year. And uh, if so, I will consider that a huge win because that will be able to spread this message on to other people um, that, like me, had never heard of it. So Yeah, that would be great. Right. So um, I do have – I have to give a trigger warning because it's in the notes. Um, I have to give a trigger warning. This episode <laughs> is going to include uh, – we're going to talk about a lot of abuse and death of children in graphic detail. Uh, So if that is something that you don't want to hear or you feel might trigger you, uh, this might not be the right episode for you to watch. uh, But if you feel that you are okay with that, then please watch because this is going to be a lot of important information. And uh, I am looking forward to having this conversation. But I don't want anybody out there getting upset about anything. So I wanted to throw that out there at the beginning because it's in the notes. Um, But so residential schools. uh, I know that you've wanted to talk about this for a lot of months. Uh, So what is the deal with residential schools? Um, So there's a lot of stuff. Um, This subject is actually very important to me because, you know, I'm the Eskimo libertarian. I actually am Alaska native. I'm Yupik Eskimo, if people are interested in that. And so this is very important to myself um, because it's actually affected my family. Um, My grandma was forced to go to a residential school. And my mom, if she was just a couple years older, would have been forced to go to a residential school. So this is how recent this history is. There's a lot of people alive today that are affected by this. And so I went through and kind of have a whole history of how this all began. And so started in like the late 1700s, early 1800s. And this is when, 
you know, we have the colonials and everything, and there's like the Native Americans, and they wanted to do some westward expansion. And that was very difficult because there was a lot of nomadic Native American tribes. And so you have people like Thomas Jefferson. I know you love Thomas Jefferson. You even have a tattoo of him. But so he wanted these Native Americans um, to switch their practice of nomadic life to husbandry and household arts. And then you have James Madison. He said it was time to complete the work of transitioning the Indians, Indians being Native Americans, that was the term they use, from the habit, uh, habits of the savage arts to the comforts of social life and you know, sitting down, not being nomadic, right. what have you. So this is textbook, government thinks they know best how you should be living your own life. And this right. is a pattern that we see even today. You know, not that I'm hinting towards anything specific. So, uh, re- re- I, I actually know this. I actually know one of the words that you used, um, but I learned it not too long ago. Husbandry. Um, you said that he wanted them to kind of be geared toward husbandry. Um, that's actually that's like biology, right? That's like caring of animals. Correct. Um, I read it as something else, but maybe you know more about this, actually. Yeah, because they're trying to change that word in. Um, the care, cultivation, and breeding of crops and animals. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, they're trying to actually change that word in today's lexicon because it's patriarchal. Um, I mean, they're that, that's why they're tra- changing it now. I, I had to go through, and we have a lot of courses that were husbandry one hundred and one kind of stuff, and I had to change them all to animal care. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, agriculture. Um, but yeah, so, so he was trying to get them to stop their nomadic life and instead be stationary and focus on agriculture and, uh, like fishing and things like that, as opposed to living the lives that they had been living for centuries, essentially. Yeah. Thousands of years estimated like 10,000 years, even though there's actually more archeological finds that are like long older than that, but yes. Um, so you've got a lot, I know that you have stories, like you have a lot of stories from your family. Um, and James, James Madison, uh, James Madison, who a lot of people think is a decent person. Um, uh, a lot of the, like a lot of the early founding fathers had a lot of backwards thoughts and we, we all know that now. Um, at the time they weren't considered that way. It doesn't make it right what they did, but we know that they had a lot of backwards thoughts. Um, but, uh, James Monroe, he had a state of the union address in 1818, where he was kind of going into a little bit of detail on some of this stuff. And what was it that he was Yeah, so he wanted to address this problem um, because they have, you know, they were looking more towards that Western expansion. And so um, a quote from his State of the Union address in 1818 said, experience has clearly demonstrated that independent savage communities, with savage communities, meaning the Native Americans, savage communities cannot long exist within the limits of a civilized population, and that the control of the United States over them them being the savage communities or Native Americans, should be complete and undisputed. 
Those are his exact words. And in it, he was encouraging Congress to take steps to, like he said, control the Native Americans and make it complete and undisputed. So, uh, yeah, he said, I present this subject to adopt the subject to the consideration of Congress on the presumption that it may be found expedient and practical to adopt some benevolent provisions. So this is really important because it was under the guise of it being a benevolent provision. Right. It, this is much more, this is much more like you'll see this, you'll see this today where they are trying to sell you I don't know, uh, vaccine mandates on fear. Um, just as, as a random example that I'm just going to pull out of anywhere, uh, you know, vaccine mandates on fear, um, or, you know, the, the NDAA or the Patriot Act on fear. Like this is what they were doing back then. Politicians really haven't changed. They still use fear to get things passed. And this is just another example of them doing so. Exactly. And so that's why I really emphasize that he said it's supposed to be benevolent provision and whatnot. And so that's how they passed the Indian Civilization Act of 1819. And so that was passed in March and it was $10,000 that they annually use for Indian education. And so the idea was like, we're going to, you know, if we build it, they will come, you know, because, hey, we know best how to live your life. And so over the next 10 years, they made 52 schools, and um, this was by the federal government and by Christian missions. So a lot of people credit this to just Christian missions, but the federal government had a big hand in this. Right. And so this was supposed to be by choice, and they thought the children were going to be flooding in. But surprise, surprise, they're like, no, we like our way of life. We're not going to go do that. It literally took them five years to start doing this by force all right, we're going to force these children into these schools. Five years. So, okay, so they're... God, there are so many parallels I can draw to today. Um, I know. And, yeah, we'll just demonetize this episode. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, you're fine. Totally fine. I'm okay with it. Actually, the stuff we've been getting away with recently and still being monetized, unless it's your show, Cajun. Um, <laughs> God. It's it, all of our episodes are being monetized except for Cajun. Um, <laughs> I, I, I request reviews on all of them. Uh, but <laughs> so they figured that people were just going to be like, oh, good. The government's here to help, which as much as I understand people don't like Reagan. He was right when he said those are the scariest words you can hear. Um, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Um, that was my Reagan impersonation. Um, you don't get to use it often anymore. But uh, <laughs> in eight, in 1819, they're like, "I'm here. I'm here from the government. I'm here to help." And the the natives were like, "No, no, we have been here for much longer, and uh, we're going to continue doing things the way that we do them. We're going to teach them the way that we want to, um, and we're not going to go to your government indoctrinated schools." Um, and less than five five years later, six years before he left office. So yeah, we'll say five years later. Um, it they were literally rounding them up and forcing them into these schools. Yes. Uh, like so, literally on his way out the door. Like, hey, start doing this by force now. See ya. And what was like? So what was the in the 
I feel weird asking you these questions. Uh, like, what was the punishment if you were like, no, we're just going to go to the next area where we hunt and fish and live? Like, what if you just said, no, we're not going to do that and just moved on? Like, what was, were they like throwing people in prison or were was it worse? Uh, yeah, they were throwing people in prison and mom's parents were being beaten as children were forcefully taken from their families. Like there's actually um, old paintings depicting this where you have um, military force going through these native villages and literally taking screaming children from their mothers. And it's quite brutal actually. And uh, uh, later on it, uh, people would actually be sent to Alcatraz prison and so you were either beaten, murdered, or sent to jail if you didn't comply. Just comply. Uh, follow the science. Um, so yeah, right. So they, when the children were taken, they were they were forced to go to school. Sometimes like hundreds to thousands of miles away. Like yes, halfway across. Well, at the time, that would have been all the way across the country. Um, so essentially what the U S government was doing was attempting cultural genocide. Yes. And they were succeeding in doing so. Well, yeah. Um, it's dark. It's really dark. It, yeah, it, it is. It is. No, you're totally fine. Um, you are totally fine. So, so as, as we know, like, Children were stripped of their traditional clothes, so they couldn't wear the traditional native garb. Regalia, yes. Yeah, okay. Regalia, that's a better word, I think. So we're going to go with traditional native regalia. Um, The boys had to cut their hair short, which I... That should just never be forced on anybody, ever. Um... They couldn't speak native languages or perform in their cultural practices. And uh, their whole identity was going to be stripped from them by the government. And uh, they were going to be whitewashed into what the government and the Christian church saw that they should be acting like. Their version of morality. Exactly. And there's even accounts, there's even accounts of um, the teachers going and trying to bleach their skin whiter. Bleach children's skin whiter literal whitewash literal whitewash um jesus christ now i know uh so a lot of the photos of these schools where where are they coming from because i know they're coming from somewhere yeah, so there was the Carlisle Indian Industrial uh, School. And so that's where you're going to see a lot of the photos coming from if you look it up online on Google Images of residential schools. And so this was started in 1879 by Richard Henry Pratt. So he had retired from the military and pretty much he started the first Native American boarding school. And what he did pretty much is he rounded up a whole bunch of Native American boys. He put them in militarist clothes and um, kind of did before and after photos showing like, hey, look, I can civilize these Indians, as he put it. And so it was 
so successful in terms of propaganda that the government was like, yes, we need to fund this program more. And so he he was very successful in making sure that the government had more of a hand in this because people were seeing this like, oh yeah, he's so successful about this. So this was the first Native American boarding school and the motto of the school was kill the Indian, save the man. I'm not even joking. That is the motto of the school and that was part of the propaganda is to kill, K-I-L-L, kill the Indian, save the man. And children were forced from hundreds, if not thousands of miles away to attend this school. And because of this, um, over 350 schools were created after that. And they adopted that militaresque rigid structure that, Car you know, at the Carlisle School because, you know, he was ex-military. That's the life he knew. Um, so it's not exactly sure how many children attended this school, but it was a lot. Thousands. Yeah. Now I know. Um, so, uh, like, obvious because of the time period that it was in, and uh, the fact that there wasn't electricity or the internet, um, like the propaganda is going to work because you're going to have you're you're relying basically on word of mouth and print media, and they're just going to say the things that they're being told by their bosses. Um, so the propaganda has got to work, especially back then. Um, so in the end, over 350 schools ended up being created. Yeah, at least. Um, it's not exactly sure how many, but it estimated 350 because not all the time were they registered. So Fair. I know. So I know somewhere here in Florida, there was a uh the god what's it called um the american indian boarding school or the boys school for american indians here in florida um and i know that it was here where they ended up finding a lot of the bodies and i think it was one of the things that ended up kicking off a lot of the investigations um was what was happening here and that led to a lot of it um and it's, it's, it's crazy to think that these people who had been here for millennia, um, that had been living a certain way of life, that hadn't ever asked for, had never asked for a change in that life, were now having this forced upon them. Um, um, but much like, like with the school here in Florida, that they were doing this stuff uh, I know up until at least the sixties, uh, it was a very militaristic rigid structure that they were using. And that's how all the way up till when they were finally shut down, um, they, uh, they were getting judges to send people there because they was like, no, this is good for them. And the judges were just like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. Um, about, do you know how many kids were at these schools? Uh, so, Looking at some of the estimates um, in the 1900s, uh, like early 1900s, they're thinking around 20,000 Native children were in the schools. But then by 1925, they had over 60,000 children attending these schools. And again, that's a rough estimate because not all children were documented. Uh, but yeah, by 1926, more than 80% of Indigenous school-aged children were attending these boarding schools. 
you can't get 80% of people to do anything. And so if you're forcing 80% of the people to do this, that is terrifying that they were even able to do this. Um, so obviously, I, I know that this is going to go kind of without saying, but the living conditions, I imagine, weren't good. They were awful. Yeah. Just... So, first off, they had recurring outbreaks of influenza, mumps, measles, chickenpox, and tuberculosis. And that was for a number of factors. So, there was overcrowding. They were forcing some children to share beds. So, you would have two or three kids sharing a bed at these residential schools. And they were just packed with as many kids as you can. Like I said, 80% of indigenous school-aged children were attending these. They didn't have the provisions for that many people. Also... You're dealing with children, and they had irregular medical care. Um, Children need regular checkups and whatnot, but they didn't have enough medical staff going out to these schools to do their medical care. And then there was a lack of quarantining sick children. So you would have children that were sick, and they were still sharing beds with other children and staying in close quarters. They didn't quarantine those children that were actually sick. So it was just rampantly going through multiple times. These children were hit with a lot of sickness. And, and, and knowing and knowing what we know about human history, um, you know, you can you can take a look at uh, the the border issues that we see where the border patrol or the the people in charge of the, the, the what are they called down there now? Um, the overflow facilities um, where they I can't keep up with the name. Yeah, I can't either. Um, where they have been sexually assaulting people at the border. Um, and you hear about it in prison and you hear about it, you heard about it uh, from the, the, uh, the internment camps and from uh, the Holocaust. Uh, like this is not anything new. So I imagine that back then you had the same sort of issues going on to these children. Yes, they experienced many forms of abuse, including mental, physical, spiritual, even sexual abuse. And we're talking about children here. So there was sexual abuse of children. And um, one of the examples that was like a form of punishment that would, uh, they would use, I was watching this interview and this individual said his father was forced to attend residential school in British Columbia. And they had this thing called um, like the monkey room. And it was this brick room with no windows, no lights or anything. And they would throw you in there if you'd been bad throughout the night and shut the door and lock it. And I, as a child, even as an adult, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. That, yeah. That's, and, yeah. That's terrifying. Um, so when, when kids would try to speak their native language, um, whichever one it was, would that like end them up in the monkey room or would that be? That was one form of um torture that they would use another torture that was actually very common they would take needles and pierce your tongue if you were speaking that language because that is to them the language of the devil and so you should only speak english because that's the christian language sure sure otherwise they'd be starved Right. Okay. Um, yeah. 
the language of the devil. Uh, and English is the Christian language, which is like the newest language. So that makes sense. Um, why not? Uh, so they're they're dealing with you know they're dealing with the massive amounts of abuse. They're dealing with the sexual abuse, the mental abuse, um, spiritual abuse. Um, they're being told that their ways were just wrong, uh, that they need to conform and uh, act more like the white man. Uh, and don't worry, we are here to protect you. Um, I actually had a shirt that if it was not orange shirt day, I had a shirt I was going to wear today that had a bunch of Native Americans on it, and it says turn over your guns, trust the government. And it's, and I was going to wear that today, but because of orange shirt, day, um, I wanted to wear this. Um, but they were told that like being just living the life that they had known for millennia, uh, that would send them to hell. They're telling send... children this. Right. Which that is a good way to scare children into indoctrination um i mean it's not right but it's it's effective it's effective it is very effective um uh so they ended up so obviously as children you are going to come out of that with some self-contempt and you're going to have some hatred towards your family towards you toward your friends toward anybody who's not kind of going this path that you are now being forced into. So it's like uh, quarantining them away from their families and friends. Exactly. And like that self-hatred bred a whole bunch of issues. Go figure. Where um, these kids didn't adapt well and they didn't go back to their families because, well, first off, their families, they were taught our that of the devil they're going right. to go to hell and so yeah this is what they're telling children and like it's gonna be the greatest sentence i've ever said um can we go a little bit deeper into like do we know more about the sexual abuse that was happening um do we know like to what extents this was yes um many um, many kids were sexually abused, and in fact, the girls, they were girls because these are children who ended up being pregnant, were forced to have abortions because we can't have evidence that they're being sexually abused. So they were forced to have abortions, and to hide the evidence that there was a fetus, they would throw the aborted fetuses into incinerators. And this is a common enough practice. I have actually watched a couple of interviews where separate people from different residential schools talked about how, like, they would give a kid, like, a potato sack or a potato gunny sack, and there would be something inside, and they'd say, throw that in the incinerator. And they were told not to look inside. And there's one child, he actually looked inside anyways, and it was aborted fetuses that he was throwing into the incinerator. And somebody in the comments said, I, I, I read it when it came up. Um, who was it? Uh, I think it was Jacob LaBelle. Um, and he, yeah, Jacob. Uh, and he said, and no one stood up and said that this was wrong. Like no, nobody in America at that time was standing up going, this is, this is wrong. This is not something that we should be doing. 
This is a not boring, until nineteen twenty-eight. Okay. All right. All right. So, well, I'm looking forward to nineteen twenty-eight a little bit then. Um, <laughs> that's another weird sentence, um, but. Uh, so obviously, ch uh, kids are going to be dying. Like a lot of children are going to be dying, and uh, from the from neglect and starvation and the abuse, and probably many other reasons. Um, was there a time in which, like, they were going to be able to like see their families? Would they be able to like get together to see parents or grandparents? And no, so they made sure that there was complete separation from the parents for the best effectiveness. So children could not write home, not often. Um, the children that were allowed to write home were forced to write in English and their families at home were unable to read the English. They didn't know English, but that's what they received. And parents weren't even notified if their child was sick or if their child had died. Nothing. And what, so what would happen if like one of the kids was like, if they tried to escape, if they were, if they were like, no, you know what, F this and whatever that phrase was back then, F this, I'm out. I'm not dealing with this anymore. I'm going to, I'm out, I'm leaving. And they tried and they tried to leave. The police would try to track them down. They would have flyers out saying that there's children. Um, a lot of children I mean, these are children we're talking about. They were hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from home. A lot of them went to the woods and tried to live there. Um, there's plenty of stories actually of children like living on the outskirts, living like near farms where they tried to steal food from the farm and live in the woods. A lot of children perished trying to get back home, hitchhiking back home. A lot of children were tracked down. It's very sad, but a few children did make it back home. And uh, that is where we get our knowledge today that we know today. That's how we were able to keep some of this knowledge alive of our ancestors and their cultural practices is those children that were successfully able to escape, literally escape this awful prison and make it back home to their families. So... I'm not okay. So let's jump ahead 1928 because it sounds like at least something good is happening in 1928. Um, something better, maybe not good, better, better, better is something better is happening in 1928. Um, what, what was going on then? What, what happened so in 1928? Yeah, this is when the living conditions of these schools started surfacing. So there's this thing called the Merriam Report, and it was submitted by Secretary of the Interior Hubert, Hubert Work. Gosh, try saying that three times fast. Um, so he had this Merriam Report, and it was titled The Problem of Indian Administration. And so it kind of labeled out what was going on at these schools and what we should be doing differently. So first off, what we should be doing differently. He said, abolish the uniform course of study that only taught European American cultural values and that we should educate younger children closer to home. So unfortunately, it said that like older children should still attend like non-reservation schools like further away, but at least have the younger kids because some of these kids were as young as three years old. As young as three and they are away from home. 
And so have um, also have Indian Service, which is now known as the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So have Indian Service provide education and skills to adapt both their own society and US society, kind of have like an immersion school, if you will. Um, so those were the recommendations. Now, okay. for the, it also listed out some of the conditions that were going on in the school and letting people know in Congress what is going on. And so even though I've listed off some of the stuff that has gone on, a lot of people are like, well, it was back then people had disease and died and whatnot, you know, it was right. a rough time to live. However, it stated in the report that the death rates of Native American students were six and a half times higher than for other ethnic groups of that age. So Six as and a half times. So as people from Europe and other areas started coming to the US and they're like, hey, there's this new country, let's go check this place out. They're, you know, accepting everybody. Um, and they were coming here and all of those people that were like, okay, yeah, we we are choo we are choosing to be there and we want to be there, like they were not exactly falling victim to a lot of the same things that the natives were when they were being forced into these situations and they were being forced to be at these schools where horrible, horrible shit was going on. Um, like a lot of like in a lot of this, I am learning today for the first time and it is like, I've always known that the history of the U S is not going to be, what we've all learned it is not what we've learned uh the statement history is written by the winners is true uh and when you start digging into things and reading opposite sides you can start to piece together where it really is i always knew that whatever happened to the natives before uh you know today uh i always knew it was never as good as what we had been told but I never expected it to be to the level that it is that you have been describing. Um, so after the, after the, and again, it's just, it's gut wrenching that there was a time in history here in this country where this was going on. Um, but so after the Miriam report, were schools closing? Did people go, no, we need to end this. Some schools, but not okay. all of them. It didn't have this resounding effect that you would expect it to have. Like, this is really bad. But the thing is, Native Americans were demonized. And they were showing that these people aren't civilized. <laughs> so, why are you laughing? <laughs> So you can't, yeah. you can't see it. You can't see it. But in the background, somebody walked by and was looking in the, so I, I wasn't laughing at what you were saying. I was laughing at somebody walking by and looking into the, like dead on into the camera at me. So I, I apologize for that, but it was, it was, and I, I was like, oh God, I hope nobody else can see that. And then I looked, I was like, nobody can see that. And then that made me smile more at a very inappropriate time. And I apologize um sorry exactly. yeah i apologize for that um but um so again i i yeah i'm very sorry for that um 
Sorry, where were we? I I am so sorry. So, that really took me out of it. <laughs> that's okay. So some of the schools did start to shut down, but not all of them. Um, not okay. enough, for sure. It wasn't until like the 1960s during um, the civil rights movement did Indigenous activism actually start gaining traction. Okay. Um, so. so with the Civil Rights Act, that was when people started kind of waking up a little bit more and trying to find equality for all people. Um, now, once the civil rights movement sort of moved on, um, was that when more like more schools were being shut down then? So like late 60s, yes. early 70s kind of? Exactly. A lot more started uh, shutting down. And not only that, uh, so there were a few uh, pieces of legislation that actually were passed that were supposed to help the situation. For example, um, the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act of 1975. The remaining schools were given to tribes in partnership with the Bureau of Indian Affairs or the BIA. And then there's also the Indian Child Welfare Act. This is the act that finally gave parents the legal right to refuse their child's placement in these schools. 1970s. So, okay, so that was in 1975. Uh, when these schools first were introduced 1819 uh, and then they were it was 1825 when it became by force so that's 150, 150 years before the United States said you know what uh, parents should be able to say these the parents of these children should be able to say no you aren't taking my child to this school that's you know, hundreds of miles away or thousands of miles away or uh, not the schools that I want them to go to. Uh, it took 150 years for that yes. to happen. For this benevolent provision to finally be optional. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> And so the remaining, uh, so the remaining schools were given to tribes in the partnership with the BIA. Yes, and um, a lot of those schools ended up shutting down anyways in the eighties and nineties. There's actually not too many residential schools that are here today. Okay. Um. So I know that uh, back in the fifties, the fifties, sixties. Um, there, there was a adoption movement for natives. Um, yeah. what, 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 what was the deal with that? Like, why, why was um, the government pushing this? So this is when they noticed that the boarding schools, well, that art, if you will, was dying off and it was being called out. So they needed a new way to have mass oh what's the term i'm looking for oh just cultural genocide i'll just stick with that um mm -hmm. so it was the indian adoption project which started in 1958 and so a quote from the project is it is to stimulate the adoption of american indian children on a nationwide basis and another quote, these children will be placed primarily with non-Indian families, but the Indian child has remained the forgotten child, left unloved and uncared for on the reservation. 
that is what the program is about. So it's pretty much taking Native American children and selling them to non-natives. And they were able to sell this because this is a cheaper solution anyways for assimilation than running boarding schools. Adoption right. is a lot cheaper than running boarding schools. Um, in the comments, Joshua Nikos, who I think is, oh, I would say near you. He's our but, IT guy. Okay. Um, I was like, I, near you, but that could be still like 3,000 miles apart. Um, yeah. But he says adoption equals cheap labor, labor for farms. Yeah. Labor. Yeah. It's. If you look at um, some of the old documents and stuff, there were actually children that were sold off and advertised as being like hard worker, great for farms. You know, it wasn't like outright said, but it it was outright said pretty much. Well, yeah, yeah, we're we aren't selling you workers. We aren't letting you just buy these people to be workers at your house. But just so you know, last all day in the sun. Strong workers, strong backs, like knows how to till a field. I don't know. Um, but you'll be adopting these people, uh, and they will not be for work at your at, at your residence or at your farm. But instead, they're gonna you you will be raising them, but they're not for work. But these are the benefits. Yeah, that was part of it too. Um, another sort of way that they were going about it too is they were selling it to suburban families and so they were featuring these children like all smiling and they're the forgotten child and everything and it would be in magazines like good housekeeping and these children were unwanted and needed new life and um there were orphans that nobody wanted and they're tugging at the heartstrings of these you know white women who are reading these magazines in suburban America. And it was very successful because hundreds of families were asking for native children to adopt. Government advertisements. And so this was all being done as, as so the government could try to assimilate these children into what they believed was the right mindset. Yeah. That, I mean, that's where all the evidence points towards because the main goal of this program as written by them is they're going to take Native American children and put them with non-Native American children. Well, they said Indian. They didn't say Native American, but with non-Indian families. That is the goal of the program. So one would believe it was for assimilation. So, and so were these kids like forcibly being taken, like just ripped? Yeah. Yeah. Cause there weren't this abundance of orphans that the government was talking about. So these children were being taken from their homes and how they were able to go about doing that. So they had these social workers going to reservations and the criteria for taking children from families was made so vague that you could take any children practically. Uh, for example, if you have too many family members in the same household, that was one of the criteria. But the thing is about Native Americans and a lot of other cultures, it's not just a nuclear family in a home. A lot of times you'll have grandma and grandpa, 
um, your aunts and uncles, uh, your cousins. And so it's kind of like this extended family under one roof. And that's very common with a lot of, um, lot of uh, groups, including Native Americans. But if it wasn't a nuclear family, they were able to come in and take the children. Another one is uh, if you don't have indoor plumbing, which during that time, a lot of rural houses have like cisterns and whatnot. And so the village where most of my family comes from, they didn't get indoor plumbing until a couple of years ago. And so that's actually something that I learned when I was up in Alaska, um, that a lot of Alaska um, didn't get indoor plumbing until literally this, well, this century. Um, and they were like, no, they just continue doing it the old way. They didn't really need to worry about it. Um, so if that was the way that you were living and every, and you were happy with it, why would that have been a criteria for, not that anything that you've said is a criteria, but exactly. in, including, including that, like, why would that be a criteria if, if, if everybody is happy in the living situation, kids are happy, parents are happy, you know, whoever else is living in the house is happy. And this is the way that they have lived. This is the culture of which they've lived. Why does, why, why would this matter? And why would you be taking people away from their families for these reasons? Um, just because it didn't fit into your bubble of what you believed a family should be or how a family should live. Um, so tell me about, um, Terry Yellowhammer. Yeah. So I specifically mentioned about Terry Yellowhammer of the Standing uh, Rock Sioux tribe, because, uh, he was talking about in an interview that while working with, uh, or while she was working with folks impacted by these incidents, she talks about how social workers, when they would come to these reservations, to these towns. Mothers and family members were literally hiding their children wherever they could so that the social workers wouldn't come in and take their children away. And there's people alive today that remember this. A social worker would come to town and their mother is hiding them under the floorboards or up in the attic, telling them to be quiet so that the social worker doesn't hear them. Um, like that's, you, you moved past, like not you, not you, uh, the government, the, the federal government moved past the, uh, mental abuse and the spiritual abuse and the physical abuse of the schools of the residential schools. Um, and then instead they gave them the mental abuse and the trauma that's going to come from them having to hide in the floorboards uh, and be, you have to stay quiet or else you may not live here anymore. If you say anything, the government may take you and rip you from this household and we will never see you again. You will go live somewhere else. So you have to see that has to be traumatizing to both parent and child and child. Um, and, it being done just in the name of assimilation is one of the most abhorrent things um, ever. Yeah, it was really hard doing this uh, research because I'm a mom 
and right. like putting in perspective of a mom. I mean, it, I'm trying hard not to cry right now. Like I would, I was messed up for a while after doing spurts of research. And even after like yeah. my big presentation of this, it. And honestly, like, I know we still have some more to go and I, I want to get to all of this, but I, I want to say uh, unequivocally uh, that I am happy that you have put together this amount of information on this subject uh, because it's important for everybody to know this. This is, this is, these are the stories that people need to hear. They need to understand that this is what a lot of history has been like. And we can cover it up and we can say, no, that's not what happened because blah, blah, whatever government says, whatever. But government lies. Government lies always has lied. And no matter what, they are going to try to take from you. Uh, it might be something as small as a portion of your income. Uh, it might be a piece of your land. Uh, it might be your house. It might be your child. Like, at what point do you have to stand up and say something? Um, and that's partly why I'm an anarchist, where I don't want anybody to be able to say, I'm taking that from you. I'm not going to, nobody should be able to take any of that from you. Um, so the fact that we have gone now 150 years, uh, 150 years, and we are still dealing with the issues that were put into place by people that admittedly backwards thinking didn't really understand that, you know, all people are people. Um, and, you know, it was written, I think, in the document behind me, uh, all men are created equal, men being the all-encompassing for people. All men are created equal. Now, even though a lot of them, even though a lot of them might not have believed that, that was the wording that they used. Uh, and they did that because they wanted to make sure everybody had equal rights. Again, they may not have believed that all men were created equal, but because of that, they ended up giving that to people. Um, and the fact that it took this long this long, and I, I know stuff is still coming, um, that it took this long to get to this point to even see these people as close to equal. They still aren't in 1975, four or five. Um, they still aren't seeing them as equal. This is where the travesty is. And you have the government using the, their powers to say, no, we don't care. Uh, what you say. We don't even care what that document says that all men are created equal uh, because you don't qualify. And that is the real travesty because all men, people, are created equal across the board. And this should never have been a thing that's happened. Like this show should never be a show that was done because we shouldn't have to talk about these issues. But because government sucks, because people in power suck, we have to sit here and talk about it. Um, sorry. Uh, no, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. That is why we're here. That is why 
we are wearing orange shirts today because we want people to know about this issue. Um, so one in four native children were living apart from their families in the sixties. Um, Daniel Nelson Fox. I don't know that next word. Wikwemikon. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh man. Uh, he did an interview in 2019. Uh, what What was he talking about? So Nelson Fox, he was given the Christian name of Daniel by his adopted family. Okay. He came across some documents of his biological father, who was um, Victor Fox. And his father was trying to get a hold of him and his brother, his sons, you know. And the Hennepin County, which is where they lived, wrote back to the father saying that the children were adapting very well in their new family. So these children were taken away from their father and the father was not able to contact his sons. And literally Hennepin County was like, nope, they're adapting well to their new family. You don't need to be in their lives. But the thing is, that wasn't actually the truth. No one actually checked in on Nelson Fox or Daniel is the name that his adoptive family gave him. He was actually being horribly abused in his new household and he was resorting to self-harm and suicidal attempts. It was so bad. And so Hennepin counties were Minneapolis. Um, Hennepin County is where Minneapolis is. And so if Daniel or Nelson Fox, uh, if Nelson Fox was giving this interview in 2019, one can reasonably surmise that this was happening in Minneapolis area. I don't know how old he is, but I'm just going to say in the 1970s, 1970s, 1980s. Um, yep. Which over the course of human history, that was like yesterday. And I know that we have people. Yeah. Uh, somebody in the comments is lives in Hennepin County right now. Um, so over the course of his lifetime, over the course of his lifetime, this was happening in the county in which he lived. This isn't like some travesty from hundreds of years ago. This was within the lifetime of many of the people watching this show in an area where some of the people are living. Um... And because of the abuse, like you said, he he was he was trying like he tried to take his life because of this multiple times as a child. And I would imagine that 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 is not a standalone story. That can't be a, like there's no way that's a standalone no. story. Um, no. And it just kept getting backed up. Like it just kept getting supported by government. Yeah. The people who set this in motion, they actually gave a report, like an update of their Indian adoption program. And a quote from them said, generally speaking, 
we believe that Indian people have accepted the adoption of their children by Caucasian families and have been pleased to learn the protections afforded the children through good agency adoptions. That's the report they gave. Because government would never lie. Government would never lie when it came to the safety of children um, ever. Uh, So, 19, so 1974, um, there were some hearings in New York. Uh, yeah, so there were a lot of hearings that were be taking place in Congress talking about Native American children and the conditions that were happening. And um, this was also spurred by the civil rights movement. So testimonies from children affected by the Indian Adoption Program and the residential schools these testimonies, they were going into detail about the abuse and mistreatment. Um, a lot of these videos can actually be seen on YouTube and they're in color. And like just watching it, seeing it in color, it just really hits you how recent. Recent. 1974 wasn't that long ago. And many mm. of you know our followers, my followers, they were alive during that time. Yeah. And so these hearings lasted for four years, and that's what eventually passed um, the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, is what you will hear in the news. Um, okay, ICWA. Um, and they were designed to prevent breakup of the Indian family? Yep. And so it made it so that if removal was deemed necessary by the government, they didn't remove that part, but if it was deemed necessary, the child had to be placed in order of um, preference, a member of the child's extended family or okay. uh, members of the child's tribe or other Native American families. So those three had to happen first. And if there wasn't an option for any of those three, then it can go to people who are of different race than the child, which... I guess is a little bit of a, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's something, but it's not it, the right answer. Right. It, it, it's, it's a shuffle in the right direction. Like it's not, it's not a step. It's not a full step. It's just like a, okay, let's, um, I, but children are still being taken today. Yeah. Native children are actually four times more likely than white children to be placed in foster care. Four times more likely. And this isn't... Okay, so are there still the, the, the guidelines that were in place from before with the uh, nuclear family laws is what I'm going to call those? From what I understand, it hasn't necessarily been removed, just not practiced as often, if that makes sense. But still, there's definitely, um, there, it sounds like they're more willing to use those criteria than other races, and they're hitting Native families harder than white families. You know, there's definitely that discrimination factor there. Okay. So even even today, 2021, 2021, you're about to say 19. I did. Yeah, I don't know why. Um, 2021, 
you still have an issue where government is going into going into these families uh, and saying, "Hey, you know, it's not us. It's it's the rules. We just have to follow the rules. So we have to take your children, and we are going to." forcibly take them from you and put them into a family that uh, doesn't have the same belief system as them, that uh, possibly doesn't even speak the same language as them, um, that uh, doesn't practice the same cultural uh, history as them, uh, and probably wouldn't know how to do many of the things that you have taught this child to do um, over the course of its lifetime. Uh, but you know, it's the rule. It's not us. It's the rules. So the fact that this is still happening today in America, um, is exceptionally abhorrent. Uh, I've talked a lot about CPS and how terrible CPS is, uh, because yes, for every, for every, you know, one or two cases that you hear where you go, this one makes sense. You hear about the others. Um, I would imagine, I would imagine that the rate is much lower where you're like, this one makes sense when it comes to this one, when it comes to this story, when it comes to, when it comes to the natives. Um, I, you, you didn't put it, you didn't put that in, like you did not put any, any stat like that in there. Uh, but I am guessing that instead of like 20%, which that's just a rough estimate on CPS on my part. I'm guessing it's much, much lower than 10, 20%. I would have to guess too. I mean, yeah. I, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here. Like I'm just, I, I'm just making a statement. Yeah. Um, I'm just making a statement that that is just based on what we've been told today and what, you know, the fact that stuff like this is still happening. You can only surmise that it is happening at a worse rate than it is happening elsewhere um so like since it like this is because this is still happening uh still happening today and because um so many people uh like have lived through these issues um i imagine like that's got to be difficult like that's got to be difficult for them that's gonna be difficult for their families uh to try to deal with the emotional baggage and the burden that has been brought on them because of this um has there been negative obviously yes uh, but like what sort of negative repercussions have come coping skills coping yeah coping skills yeah so many have struggled to cope with this trauma go figure so many have resorted to drugs alcohol i've already mentioned self-harm even suicide after seeing all this trauma, experiencing this trauma. And for some, it's actually manifested into mental disorders. So children that haven't been able to grow up with their family who have been abused, talked about how they aren't human, they're subhuman, they aren't, you know, so it's manifested into mental disorders. And um, this gaslighting was so affected that children blamed themselves and thought something was wrong with themselves 
And the thing is, it's not helped by the victim blaming in today's society. I see it all the time where people are talking about drunk native jokes or, you know, there's prejudice in mainstream media that I have like actively seen, you know, against natives. It's even been against my own family members. Um, and I have stories of that. And so it's very deeply culturally rooted it, yes. even today. Right. And it is, uh, you, you, you definitely, like you said in there, you can, uh, can be seen in jokes about drunk natives. And as I remember as a child seeing, uh, cartoons where, you know, the, the native was always, the native American was always just, you know, he had the bottle with the X's on it and he was always drinking. Um, so, and even while we've had like this woke push uh, for equality everywhere, you still will see these stereotypes everywhere, like in, in media. Um, can, I'm going to, I'm not sure which way I'm hoping for this, uh, but was this like something that was, strictly to America, like, or was this more worldwide? So a lot of people know about like the Canadian schools as well. Um, right. In fact, Orange Shirt Day originated from Canada, but it wasn't just Canada and the U.S. It also included Australia and New Zealand that you would see at least parallel atrocities on the same level with the same reasoning and to the same scale. So uh, I know that this, I remember right when you uh, started Cajun Eskimo from Bayou's Day Goose, Friday nights, 9.30 Eastern. Um, that was roughly about the time that uh, there had been a bunch of schools in Canada that had been searched, right? That was right about the time you guys started? I think so. Yeah, it's, we're about to have our 14th show. Okay. If that means so, yeah. anything. Yeah. So um, when I originally got all these notes together, um, I had said as of July 2nd, they had searched seven schools in Canada and more than 1,500 child grave sites had been found. We are now above 5,000. And it's not, it's kind of hard to have an exact number because it's not necessarily reported about. It's not the hot trending topic right now, but over 5,000 child grave sites at these schools. Some of these are mass unmarked graves. There is children as young as three years old and these graves are shallow. They're about three feet deep. And there's still hundreds more school sites to be searched. Um, Thousands of children. The and like I said earlier, when like, a child passed away, their parent wasn't notified either. Right. I knew, so I, re I remember when this story broke in July and uh, I was watching uh, Cajun Eskimo from Bayou's Diggles and you, you kind of, you went into it. And uh, I remember I was sitting there with, uh, super fan Sarah Anderegg and 
you could have heard a pen drop and for lack of a better metaphor you could have heard a pen drop uh in in that house because it was heart-wrenching uh to hear what what had been going on um and it 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 raised it opened my eyes to an issue that I did not know existed, that I did not know existed, that I was unaware of, uh, and I didn't know how close to home it hit with uh, the school that was here in Florida, um, and how all across America and all across Canada, uh, because of these government schools and church schools, um, People were being abused. People were being murdered. I had no idea about like the, uh, the the forced abortions that they were throwing into the the gunny bags and you know incinerating so that way there would be no evidence. Um, there would be no evidence. And if ever anybody had to question whether or not government's evil, like this, this is this is. This is the evidence that somebody should need. That it's just like, no, this is this is too much. Like anybody that any power that can do something like this, uh, and not even bat an eye has way too much power. And they should not have any. Um can you before I go me? into that part, um, okay. I would like to say something that has made it Please. very easy for folks, because a lot of people are like, how could this happen? Right. There's a lot of government propaganda that demonized a group of people. Okay. And once that group of people is demonized, it is easy to suppress them. And so that's something I like to advocate about is like, be careful who is being demonized. We are all people. Like we, the people, right. are created all equal. Um, yep, all men are created equal and people. Um, but yeah, no, that's a great, that is a fantastic point because when you see the government demonizing someone, um, we, we say it on Muddy Waters of Freedom all the time. Uh, when you have a story that's going on and it's like, why is this such a big story? It means something else is happening. If the government is demonizing a specific set of people, that means that somewhere they are probably doing something terrible to that specific set of people. Um, John, John Morrissey uh, from Defy the Power and Stitches and Glitches uh, says unaccountable government like uh, demonizing countries as all terrorists. When you are demonizing an entire country and I'm not I'm not uh, afraid to say that they got me for a while when I was younger and I fell for the propaganda. But yeah, no, we, I know that I've said this sentence in my lifetime. I'm not proud of it, but I know I've said the sentence in my lifetime. We should just turn it all into a glass parking lot. I know I've said it. I don't feel good about having said it. But I fell for the propaganda. It wasn't until later where you start learning more and you start seeing things. And like you said, if they are demonizing somebody, there's probably something else going on. Um, 
especially so, when it's accompanied by a benevolent provision. Yes, which usually if they're deem, de I almost said demonetizing, uh, demon. <laughs> It's a sentence, that's a word I say a lot. Um, yeah. But uh, you usually, you're right. If they're demon, demonizing somebody or a group of people or a country, they are demonizing them under the guise of a benevolent um, decision or a benevolent reason because they they want you to believe for your safety that these people are out to hurt you in one way or another. Um, pull an example from this week-ish. You know, it's a it's it, pandemic of the unvaccinated. It's not, but they're demonizing these people under the guise of safety. I'm not comparing the plight of the unvaccinated to the plight of the Native Americans. I'm just trying to tie it together to today. Um, So can you tell me about the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition? Yeah. So I actually, while I was doing this research, I stumbled upon this, um, the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. And it's a group of individuals that are working on educating folks about what we just talked about, um, as well as uh, they have more resources on there. And those that have been affected by this, um, they have been working on getting people help. And so uh, on there, there's a list of schools that they, uh, they have a whole list of schools in terms of like in the US and Canada of where these residential schools were. And they also have a way that you can implement or like a, submit another school like, oh, like my grandma went to this school. And so they're trying to compile a list of all the schools because they're, like I said, we don't know exactly how many. There's an estimated 350 different schools that were doing this. And we know that there was something along the lines of 150,000 children that were affected, somewhere upwards to even 200,000 children affected. We don't actually officially know. These are low estimates. So they are working on educating, collecting information, and helping those that have been affected get help. And uh, for anybody that's interested in looking into them more, their website is boardingschoolhealing.org. And I'm just going to put that into the comments right now. Uh, so that way, if you are watching us live, it will be there. I will also add it to the show afterwards. Um, so I know you, 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 touched on, you touched on why we wear orange uh, a little bit earlier, but why why are we what can you tell the people why we are wearing orange today yeah so back in 2013 there's a woman by the name of of uh, phyllis webstad and she was telling her story and her experience about going you know attending a residential school and so she was attending saint joseph's mission school which is in williams lake british columbia in the 70s when she was there first day her new orange shirt that she just got from her grandma was actually stripped away from her. She never saw that orange shirt again. And they gave her um, school uniforms instead. And every time she sees the color orange, it reminds her of that day because they literally stripped her of her identity. Taking like this beautiful orange shirt from her grandma, which seems like a simple thing maybe, but right. she literally was stripped away of her identity as a Native American and forced into you know, the white 
Christian sort of lifestyle. And again, like I said, with the demonizing of her own language and cultural practices. And so after that story, it really resonated through folks, like showing this, like being stripped away of your identity of her orange shirt. And so orange became the color to represent residential schools. And so now we have orange shirt day, which um, normally occurs like in early fall when children would be going back to school. So this year it's September 30th. And I don't know if it's going to be September 30th every year, but it's okay. just symbolizing like this is like school time is starting. And so you wear orange shirt and um, it's, it's been observed since 2013. Okay. And it, it was primarily observed in Canada. Yes. So okay. now it's like making its way more into the U.S. And so that's why I'm like putting posts about it. And people are like, I've never heard about it. I'm like, well, right. we're making and, a trend. Right. And that's, you know, that's how I was uh, Tuesday. Had never heard about it. And uh, I am truly honored that you could be on the show today to talk about it with us. Um, and so for, for uh, Phyllis Webstead, uh, I like I understand what I understand that like the color orange reminds her of her grandmother because of the shirt and because she was being ripped away and because her identity was being ripped away from her uh how the color orange always brought her back that that clicks with me I I I understand that 100% and as tragic of a story as that is, it makes the wearing of the orange one of the most poignant and poetic things ever. Um, and since since uh, we don't know if September 30th will be Orange Shirt Day uh, every year, uh, I know that next year, 2022, um, right? Yes. Uh, 2022. <laughs> I don't know what year it's... Uh, we will, <laughs> we here at Muddied Waters will definitely celebrate Orange Shirt Day and we will push all that we can here. And that, that's a promise I can make to you, to everybody in the audience. Um, I, 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 hands down, we will push it. And uh, if any of us have shows on whatever day Orange Shirt Day is, we will wear orange that day. Um, Cause this, this is, it's heavy. It's heavy. It is incredibly heavy and it's heartbreaking um, to know that in our lifetimes, that people have been treated this way and that they've been abused uh, at the hands of the government uh, for reasons that don't make any, that never made any sense, but especially don't make sense now. Um, Yeah, uh, it. This is one of those things I, that not a lot of people knew about, and then right. those that did kind of know about it, they didn't know it was this bad until like I started telling them about it, and they're like, "Oh, it was that bad. It was like, I, I don't use the term lightly, but it was our own version of a Holocaust." Yeah, and I would not. I would not hit you on that. I wouldn't say, well, no, that's nothing like, cause yes, that's, that's what this was. It was a, it was your version of a, of the Holocaust. 
it was cultural genocide being perpetrated by the government against its people. And this is this is a heart like it, it, it's a heartbreaking story. And uh, again, like I know I've said it before, but like I'm honored that you came on here today to talk about it with me. Like honestly, thanks. Um, I uh, is I don't even know how where where to go after hearing all of this. Um, if people yeah, because people... I know. I was going to say, I know Cajun and Spike had their own show and we're like, well, we're going to have our own show. I didn't mean for it to be this dark. Right. No. And, you know, I, um, in all honesty, this is the show I would have wanted to do. Uh, this is the show I would have wanted to do because this is, I know people aren't going to believe this, but I actually like touching on the important stuff. Um, and this definitely more than qualifies as the important stuff. Um, Uh, uh, so is there any, are there anything that you want to leave the people with here that we, that you haven't touched on at this point or the biggest thing when I talk about this story is I want people to be able to draw the parallels whenever tyranny happens, it's not going to be the exact same way, but it follows the same structure. And so watching when there's propaganda demonizing a group of individuals and are willing to oppress those and the government saying, I have the solution to the people I am saying are the demons. It's happened so often and so many different times. This one really resonates me because, you know, I have that personal connection that like my grandma went to one of these residential schools and almost my mom, but being able to draw the parallels. Right. And and we touched on many of them to what is going on in America today. Um, but you can do this throughout all of history where you can see the same playbook being used. Uh, and you can see it in, in America specifically, you know, Japanese internment camps. If you go over to Europe, you've got uh, the Holocaust. Uh, if you go to, you know, Russia, you've got the gulags. You've got so many different places where this playbook has just been used over and over and over and over again. And the government using propaganda in order to sell these kind of atrocities uh, to the rest of the unwitting public. Um, and it's not until you get people coming out and talking about the issues that, you know, this is what's actually happening and people being able to open up their eyes. Uh, that's why it, more than anything, it is massively important to be able to talk about these things openly and freely uh, without fear of government repercussion, um, which even with, you know, the First Amendment as it is today, uh, like you don't even have that anymore. Um, I yeah I honestly this this is this is the first time that I don't know how to like go to the end of a show ever. 
Like normally I'm just like, okay, well, that's it. But uh, this one I'm like. You have one other I, sponsor. <laughs> I do have one other. Yes, I do. Um, it's going to feel so weird. Um, so if anybody out there enjoyed this, you can show your support by going to Defy the Power and picking up one of these wonderful tumblers. They're very nice. You can get them customized, free customizations. And uh, they have different things you can put on the bottom, like mine. Uh, and <laughs> for me too. Um, <laughs> but if you use the code MUDDYTUMBLER, two words, at checkout, you get 10% off. Defy the power, stitches and glitches. Defythepower.com, stitchesandglitches.com. Um, <laughs> so you have a show tomorrow. Yeah. Do you have anything you'd like to close with before we get there? I have a show tomorrow and I need to do notes. <laughs> and now you know what I mean when I say I need to do notes. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> I don't do it this extensively, but yes. No, I get that. Um well, everybody, uh, tomorrow it's a uh, 9.30 Eastern, correct? Yes, I had to do the math. It's 5.30 for me. Okay, so yeah, nine, 9.30 here. Um, 9.30 Eastern, uh, 8.30 Central, 7.30... Mountain. Mountain, thank you. <laughs> 6.30 Pacific. 6.30 Pacific. 3.30 Hawaiian. You're 3.30 Hawaiian. Um <laughs> Everybody tune in tomorrow. Um, tune in tomorrow night because uh, Cajun Eskimo from Bayou's Daily is going to be happening. It's going to be a fantastic show. Uh, it always is. I usually get a chance to listen to it Monday morning on my way into work. Um, but every time it's great stuff, uh, even if it is, even if it is never uh, monetized. Um, <laughs> Cajun. It's not my uh, fault. It's, it's not, not my fault. <laughs> it is not her fault. It is 100% Cajun's fault every time. Um, this weekend, I know that Spike is in Minneapolis. So if you are in Hennepin County, uh, you can head on out to see Spike and talk to him about what you just learned today. Um, I'm certain he's going to enjoy that. And uh, on Monday, which is the 4th, Right? Yes. Monday the 4th, we have a brand new episode of Liberty Roundtable, uh, which brings together lots of people from different, um, lots of people from different uh, uh, mindsets, different political backgrounds. This is such the, this is the most awkward closing I've ever done. Um, different political ba backgrounds uh, who are going to be debating one particular subject. Uh, so that is at 6.30 Eastern. Next Tuesday, you can see me and Spike Cohen right here on Muddied Waters of Freedom, where Spike and I will parse through the week's news like the sweet autumn cherubs that we are. Uh, and then next Wednesday, you have Spike Cohen coming back on uh, for my fellow Americans with you're not going to believe who he has on. You are not going to believe it. It's going to be a shock to you. Uh, and then next Thursday, right here on the writer's block, uh, I have Bill Redpath, who is going to be my guest next week. So be sure to tune in for that. Melik Eskimo. I can honestly say that 
outside of the show that Superfan Sarah Andereg was on, which I am contractually obligated to say is my favorite show I've ever done. <laughs> that was a good show. This is a. This is um, my favorite episode that I've ever done, outside of the one with Superfan Sarah Andereg, who I love dearly and uh, means the world to me. Um, but yeah, this has been my favorite show, and thank you for having this show with me. Uh, well, thank you for uh, having me on here. Yeah, no, I, I help out. Um, yeah, no, I. I can honestly say that in the five years I have been doing Muddied Waters Media, uh, Muddied Waters Freedom in the Writer's Block, um, I have choked up twice at a show. And this was the second one. Uh, the first one was only a couple of weeks ago. But uh, this was one of the, like, this was a very difficult episode to do for me. So I can't even imagine the strength that it took for you. Um, and I know that you are able to just like go into a pond and wrestle with salmon and like grab it right from the water. But the strength that you possess just as a human being in general is inspiring. And thank you so much for being part of Muddied Waters. Thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> um, to everybody else, have yourselves a great weekend. Tune in tomorrow night for Cajun Eskimo from Bayou Steguas. Um, and uh, we will see you next week. Uh, I'm not going to do the fun fact of the week this week because it doesn't feel right. Um, so have a great weekend and uh, I will see you all Eat next tomorrow. week. I, I am I am swinging from a seven story window throwing parties in a ten by seven cell it's a stunning the legs I'll go to convince the whole damn world Yeah.